Good morning. Hey, good to see you all. My name is David. Like Matt said, excited to be here and open the word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We heard it read earlier, verses 8 to 20. So if you have your Bible, open it up. You can go there. Uh, we're going to read through it in a few moments. Uh, if you've got a Bible app, you can do that too. We would love for you to follow along with us in the text. Uh, but before we get into it, we're going to pray. Uh, so please join with me. Uh, Father, we come on this uh, just a week before uh, Christmas, uh, just remembering uh, your birth, uh, remembering that you have come uh, here to dwell with us. We pray today that it would be uh, a reason for us to rejoice in all that you've done for us. Now, we just pray for all the distractions in the world, in our minds, the anxieties, the fears, uh, the things going on that you would uh, just put those aside so that we might focus on you and to hear from you uh, through your word. Now, we pray uh, Lord, that you would just give me uh, clarity of mind and of speech so that I might uh, speak clearly and boldly. We pray that uh, all of us would have ears uh, to hear your word uh, today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, maybe uh, some of you have experienced uh, what has happened to me, maybe uh, as a kid or as a parent. What will happen sometimes uh, is I will come up to my kids and I will be super excited. And I say, kids, guess what? I have super exciting news. This is really exciting. This is going to be awesome. And they're like, really? What is it, dad? Tell us, dad, what's the exciting news? What's the exciting news? And I'm like, guess what? We're going to Superstore. And they're like, oh, really? Dad, Superstore? And I'm like, no, it's going to be great. We're going to get in the van together. It's going to be awesome, joyful time. But they're like, no, no, I don't want to go to Superstore. It's going to be great. Trust me, right? I come and I bring this good news for them. Good news, we're going to Superstore. But they are not very excited about this news. And I think that sometimes uh, some of us feel a little bit like that, maybe with Christmas. We know that a message of Christmas is, of course, uh, good news of great joy. We're going to see that in our text today. This, this news of great joy. The angels are excited. They're singing in heaven. But the message of Christmas maybe to us is not uh, that joyful. We kind of feel like it's a bit of a letdown maybe. Okay, Jesus has come. That's great. But does my heart really like swell with joy at that? I mean, there's lots of joyful things about Christmas, of course. The season itself, right? There's the presents, there's the family, there's the food, there's all of these things which we can feel joyful about. But are we joyful about the message of Christmas? Are we joyful that Jesus has come? Throughout the past few weeks in our sermon series, we've been looking at Uh, the different messages that the angels have brought. They brought uh, a message to Zechariah, to Joseph, to Mary. Uh, And today, we see the message that they bring to uh, the shepherds. We heard it read for us earlier. Uh, And they they talk about this good news of great joy for all the people. And they, they don't just say it's a news of joy, but of great joy. And so if the angels are actually like trustworthy messengers then we can trust that there there is actually joy in the Christmas message. And the goal for us today is to rediscover that joy. To find what it is that the angels are announcing that actually could make our hearts swell with joy that Jesus has come. So why is the good news of Jesus' birth a reason for joy? I will give you three reasons that I think are here in the text. But before we do that, I want to just read our passage uh, one more time. We're going to be mostly in verses 10 and 11, but we'll read the whole thing uh, once again. So if you have your Bible, again, follow along. I'll start reading in chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, uh, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, uh, heard and seen as it had been told them. So again, the, the angels come and they bring this message, good news of great joy, and three reasons why this is actually a joyful thing for us. First, Jesus' birth is a reason for great joy because the waiting is over. It is a reason for great joy because the waiting is over. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I don't like waiting. Waiting is hard. Waiting is annoying. You, there's this sense in which when you're waiting for something to come, it's just, you're like, oh, like uh, Matt, you're a kid, right? Your kid, Christmas. Why does it never come soon enough? You're always waiting. Christmas is never here. It seems like it's forever. Or you're in school and you're like, when is the end of school going to come? Right? It's always exams. There's always more. You're waiting. When is this going to end? Right? Or perhaps you're pregnant and you're like, when is this baby going to come? We're waiting. Nine months seems like a long time. Waiting is hard. And sometimes we're not just waiting uh, for a few months. We're maybe waiting for, for years for something to happen. It's hard. You're waiting for the circumstances of your life, maybe, maybe to change in a way you've been hoping for. Uh, you're, you're waiting for some promotion at job or a situation with some uh, person to be resolved and you're waiting and waiting is difficult. Sometimes you're waiting a long time, like for Avatar too, 13 years. James Cameron, what are you doing for 13 years? This is so long. This is a long time to wait. But Israel, Israel, they were not waiting 13 years. They were waiting thousands of years for this message. Because very, back at the very beginning from our, our, the first rebellion of Adam and Eve, God had made a promise. A promise that one day he would come and send someone to make things right. To bring us back into the garden, into the presence of God, and into the life that we should be having. And this is what God says uh, in Genesis 3.15. He's speaking here to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve. He said, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman. Between your offspring, the offspring of the serpent... And her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God's saying there is going to come an offspring of the woman from the seed of the woman, from the line of the woman. One day down the line, one of her descendants is going to come and he is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. 
He's going to bring to an end all that the serpent has brought into the world. Sin, death, evil. So the question, though, was just when? When is this going to happen? We, we see that right after that, uh, Eve gives birth to two children, Cain and Abel. You're like, okay, is it going to be one of them? Is one of them going to crush the serpent's head? When instead, what do they do? Cain kills Abel. I guess it's not him. And we keep waiting and waiting. What about Noah? He's a righteous man. God brings him through the flood, but yet Noah, right afterwards, he goes and gets drunk. Ooh, not a great start, Noah, for this new creation that God's doing. What about Abraham? Abraham begins. He's the, the, the father of us all. God says he's going to bless the nations through Abraham and his line. Again, Abraham doesn't pan out. What about his children and his children? We keep going down the line. Everybody's wondering, wait, wait, wait when is this going to happen? We've been waiting for a long time. We begin to get some more clues a little bit about, well, what is this deliverer going to look like? Uh, Moses, when he's speaking to the Israelites, he says that God's actually going to send a prophet like himself. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Okay, so it's from the seed of the woman. He's going to be a prophet like Moses. But we also see he's going to be a, a king like David. In 2 Samuel 7, God speaks to David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your father, so he dies, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And there's many more times like this throughout the Old Testament where God gives a promise that one day there is going to be one who is going to make everything right. Again, the question though is when and who? They keep wondering and waiting. When is this Messiah going to come? This anointed one who's going to be a prophet like Moses, a king like David. When is he going to come? And we have to put ourselves in their shoes, right? Like just imagine you're an Israelite. You've been waiting. It's not just you've been waiting your whole life for this. It's like your great-grandparents and your grandparents and your parents have been telling you one day God is going to do this. One day God is going to do this. And you're there and you're saying, I, I hope so. I guess so. Maybe. There's that sense when you're waiting for something, there's this despair that can sit in. Oh, is this really going to happen? They're waiting and waiting. Is Avatar ever going to come out? I don't know. Right? You're just waiting. What, what is going on? But yet there's also this anticipation. Okay, is it, is it here yet? Is it here yet? So then, with all of that in mind, think about what the shepherds must have thought when the angels came and said this. Remember back to verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, means Messiah, the Lord. This day. You've been waiting thousands and thousands and thousands of years, generations and generations. People have told you one day this guy's going to come and angels come and tell you today. You're like, that's great. That's amazing. Right? Think about it. You just wake up one morning, you've forgotten and you come outside and your parents are like, guess what? It's Christmas day. You're like, well, today? That's great. Right? The thing you've been waiting for is here. Your school finally done. Baby comes early. You're like, Yes. The thing I've been waiting for is here. The shepherds, man, they, they must have had such great joy. 
You think about that. Years and years of waiting and waiting and wondering, is this going to come? And the angel's like, today, right now, he's here. But the joy, again, is not just for the shepherds. Because for those of us, now, it's actually even more joyful. It's even better because the shepherds, they had to wait. We don't have to wait. It's already happened, right? The promise is already fulfilled. We don't have to wait for Jesus to come. He's already come. And if you're anything like me, I hate waiting. I hate, wait- I hate waiting so much that I bought a Nexus card so that when I go down to the States, I don't have to wait in line. I can just zoom past all of you guys who are waiting in line. Right? Just go back. I, I love that. It brings me such joy. I'm not waiting. We don't have to wait. Jesus has come. The promise is fulfilled. We don't have to tell our kids and grandkids, one day God is going to do something. We can tell them he's already done it. He's already done it. You're like a kid who is, you know, you're going on the long car ride, three, four hour car ride, and you're there and it starts, and then you go to sleep and you wake up and you're like, I'm here. This is great. You don't have to wait. You don't have to endure the long waiting season. For us now, the waiting's over. There's joy in that. That when Jesus has come, we can just look and say, yes, it's come, it's happened. I don't have to wait. That's a reason for great joy. And so that that is our first reason. The first reason is that the wait is over. But here's the second one. Jesus' birth is a reason for great joy because it's for all. It's not just that the wait is over, but Jesus' birth is for all. Uh, Look at what uh, the angel says in verse 10. And then the angel said to them, fear not, uh, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, it seems when it says it is for all the people, he's primarily talking about all of God's people, the people being God's people. Right? We do know, of course, though, uh, at this time, it was the Jews, uh, God, through Christ, he's brought a good message, a message of salvation for the Jews, but also opened it up to the Gentiles. So those of us who are non-Jewish are included in that. So all people in terms of ethnicity and culture, God is saving for himself, of course, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, but I don't know if that's exactly what the angel is talking about here. Uh, here, it seems to be uh, within God's people. It is good news for all kinds of God's people. It's not just good news of great joy for the priests, or, or good news of great joy for the, the kings, or the Pharisees or the ones who have a high standing in the community, it's good news for the poor. It's good news for the outcast, for the oppressed. It's for all. I mean, look at, look at who the, this triumphant announcement was made to. Angels singing in the sky. Who, who does God send this announcement to? Shepherds. Shepherds. Shepherds are nothing. Shepherds are like just one of the, the lowest jobs you could, you could have there. They're dirty, smelly people who hang out with sheep. They sleep in the fields. There's nothing really good about the shepherds in, in the eyes of the world. The Egyptians would even call them an abomination. They wanted nothing to do with shepherds. 
And yet when God comes to make this announcement, the announcement that his son is finally born into the world, he doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't go to the government buildings. Where does he go? To a field with sheep and a few shepherds. I mean, if you're going to make a royal birth announcement, to the shepherds does not seem like the best idea. There's lots of other better places you could go. Like, I mean, just think about it. If you uh, had a company and you wanted to send out a press release uh, and you decided, you know what, instead of sending the press release out to, you know, news agencies and bloggers and influencers, you know, I'm going to send my press release out to a bunch of ranchers outside of Merit. (laughs) What? Why would you do that? Right? It doesn't make any sense. It's, not, it's like you're, you're not posting your big baby announcement on Instagram. It's like you're letting people know in an obscure discussion forum from the early 2000s that no one knows about. Like, wh- what are you doing? God, why, why shepherds? Why does God do this? Why these people? Well, I think the answer is that God really wants to underscore the message that the angels are saying that this is good news for all the people. It is not good news just for the best or the richest. It's not good news for the ones with the most religious clout. Jesus is not some aristocratic savior. He's a savior of all. He's a savior of the ordinary person. You and me. Now I know sometimes though, when we say that, we hear that, oh yeah, Jesus is a savior of all, we can kind of think like, of course, of course he is. Of course he's a savior of all. It would be weird for him not to be. Because we think, of course, if God is going to save people, he should definitely save me, right? Like, why would he not do that? But we somehow think that we are owed or entitled to God saving us. And yet the truth is we, we deserve actually nothing from God. There's nothing that we deserve So for him to come and save all is totally an act of grace and love. And so God comes and he includes all in this salvation uh, plan. Of course, not based on their uh, position in society in any way or their riches or anything like that, but including how moral they are. God doesn't come and he doesn't say, hey, if you're doing a really good job, then this gift is for you. We see that throughout all of God's history and his interactions with people. Uh, Think about some of the people that God called to uh, serve him. Abraham, again, father of the the faith. Uh, Abraham is an idol worshiper in the land of Ur when God calls him. Moses, when God calls him, he's a runaway murderer. The apostle Paul, he's, uh, he's in the midst of a witch hunt for Christians. God calls those people those unrighteous people, to him. I mean, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' ministry was not to the people who seemed the most righteous. His ministry was to people who were, uh, in many ways, unrighteous. That's what people kind of uh, called Jesus out on and said, why are you hanging out with sinners all the time? But look at Jesus' response, Mark chapter 2. This is uh, where this happens. Uh, The scribes of the Pharisees, so the, the religious leaders at the time, when they saw that he, Jesus, was eating with sinners, with tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what, what would he be doing? 
Why would we hang out with those people? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the fact that Jesus has come for all is good news for us because uh, most of us are, are not righteous. We deserve nothing from God. But Jesus comes to those who know they need help. That's why people were so attracted to Jesus. They knew that they were in need. And here was one who didn't despise them or reject them or send them off on the side. No, no. These were the people he was drawn most to. That's why it's joyful news. Because it means that none of us, because of our standing and position, because of what we've done or our moral character, are excluded. Jesus brings in all. All are included in his plan of salvation. Uh, Look at verse 11 again. The, The angels come and they say to the shepherds, for unto you, shepherds, nobody's out here in a field. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who's Christ the Lord. Jesus' birth was not just for other people. It was for them. And sometimes I think we can think, yeah, yeah, Jesus has come and that's good, but that's kind of for others. But Jesus has come for you. No matter how you feel about yourself, whether you totally fit in, or you feel like the shepherds, you feel a little bit like an outcast, you feel like you don't even fit in within the church. You feel unimportant or not seen. You see all these things going on in the world. There's these you know, famous Christians here. There's important people in the church there. And who are you? You're just an ordinary person. That the message of the angels reminds us God's good news is not just for those people. It's for all. God's Christmas bonus, it's not just for top performers. It's not just for those who feel like they fit in or belong. It's for outcasts and those who know themselves to be in need. And we see this most clearly in, in the way in which Jesus came. I mean, how did he come? He didn't come, you know, flying first class. He he didn't even come flying economy. He came in the luggage bin. He came in a manger as a baby to a bunch of nobody parents in a nobody town announced to nobody shepherds. He came in humility so that people might know he came for the lowest. He he didn't come for the high, the righteous, the well-known. He came for the low. And that's seen so clearly in how he came. So when we look at Jesus and we see him, you know, see the images of him lying in a manger in that humble way, it's a reminder, he came for the low, he came for me. There can be joy in that for us. Joy that that he came for all. You are included, no matter how you might feel about yourself. He came for you.
That's the second reason. Jesus' birth is a reason for great joy because he came for all. Lastly, Jesus' birth is a reason for great joy because we have a Savior. It means we have a Savior. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, when people heard the word Savior at that time, they had a lot of uh, ideas of what kind of Savior this was going to be. If you remember, this has been thousands of years of the people waiting for God to send this deliverer. And they had to kind of come up with some ideas of what they thought this deliverer should be like and what kind of things he should do. One of the main things was to restore the geopolitical kingdom of Israel. They were oppressed at this time by the Romans. It was not a fun situation for them. They were not able to sacrifice and worship in the ways that they wanted. And they wanted a deliverer, a savior, who would bring them back to the days of King David. Right? King David, when he ruled, that was a high point. You know, he ruled well, benevolently, and in the midst of it, there was, there was much there where, where they were not afraid of their enemies. They were not worried. They, they had peace and safety. And the people of Israel living now under the Romans, they're saying, can we get back to that? Can we get back to the glory days? You know, if we can get delivered from this oppression? Like, think about it. Just a, a few verses earlier, it talks about Caesar Augustus, the ruler at that time of the Romans. He just declared a big uh, census. And all the people of Israel are moving back to their hometowns. Mass movement of people all around the country. And you imagine them just being like, again? Like, here's this pagan dictator 4,000 kilometers away, and he's messing up all of our life and everything. Why? Just because he wants to count people so he can have more money for taxes? Oh, why can't we be delivered from this? But the problem was, even if they were delivered, say, from the Romans, uh, th there's always another empire, right? Right? If it, it's not the Assyrians, it's the Babylonians. If it's not the Babylonians, it's the Persians. If it's not the Persians, it's the Greeks. If it's not the Greeks, it's the Romans. There's always another empire. They, they could raise up maybe for a time, but they're always going to have that instability around them. There's always going to be other nations. But that's not the real problem. The, the real issue is that even, even if that happened, it wouldn't actually fix the deeper problem, the real problem. They didn't just need a savior from their current situation. When the angel comes and talks to Joseph, as we saw last week, we see what kind of savior Jesus is going to be and what kind of savior they actually really needed. Look at Matthew 1, uh, 21. It says that she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, the greatest problem that Israel had was not Rome. The greatest problem they had was not their current situation. The greatest problem they had is that they were rebels against God. That they had turned their back on all that God had told them to do and to say and to act. And they had gone their own way. They had lived for themselves instead of for him. 
Their greatest problem was, was that they were not right with God. And one day they would have to stand before him and give an account. That was their, their biggest problem, was that their sin. They thought the problem, it's just horizontal. It's just things here in this world. Their problem was vertical. The problem was that they were not right with God. Because here's the thing. They could be free from the shackles of Rome, but they would still be stuck in the quicksand of their own sin. Their sin hasn't gone anywhere. What kind of savior is going to free them from that? That real problem. And when the angel comes though, and it it announces to the shepherds, uh, look at what it says about the savior. There's one interesting thing that the angels add at the end. In verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ, which means Messiah, the Lord. Why that little bit about the Lord? A savior who is Christ, the Lord. Well, what does it mean to be the Lord? Well, sometimes the word's just used to mean a master. But here in this context, when you see how Luke is using the word, he's actually trying to present the idea that this baby to be born is to be God himself. If you look at how the word Lord is used just in the the verses around, look at verse 9 and verse 15. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the shepherds said to one another, "Uh, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So when the angels say, hey, there's a savior who is Christ, the Lord, what they're saying is not just that this is a savior who is from God. This is a savior who is God. This is a savior who is God. And that's important because it means that this savior can actually do what he was sent to accomplish. What was the problem with all of the other people that have come before? All of the other saviors, well, they were human and they had weakness and they failed. They could never actually accomplish all that they needed to. But this savior, if he is truly the Lord, he is a trustworthy savior that can actually accomplish it. He's not just like some political savior that we put our hope in for a time or a season, hoping that then things will change and get better. And then what happens? Things stay the same. Nothing changes. Or a new hockey player that joins the team, a young rookie. You're like, oh, things are going to get great now. And your team does the same as it always does. Now, if Jesus is a savior that is the Lord, then he can actually accomplish what he was sent for. To solve the real problem, our sin. And so how is he going to do that? How is Jesus actually going to solve this problem? Well, Jesus comes and he is fully God and fully man. And he comes and he lives as a representative of humanity. On our behalf lives a sinless, perfect life. And then he voluntarily goes to a cross, dying on that cross and on that taking all of the wrath and punishment that we humans deserve for our sin. Dying there, And then rising again three days later so that we would know that in fact he has conquered death and sin. 
And he offers to all who would simply trust, turn from sin and trust in that gift that he offers. He, he tells them, your sins can be forgiven. Washed clean. Because he was the Lord, he could live that perfect life. He could take on our penalty on our behalf. And so for Israel, for the shepherds, for those at that time, there was joy because in the birth of this child, the real problem was actually going to be solved. They had a savior from their real issue, which was their sin. Even if their circumstances didn't change, the real problem was going to be dealt with. And that's joyful. Because even if the other things in their life don't change, there's joy that the real thing has been dealt with. And the same is true for, for us. We can have joy because our sin has been dealt with if we have trusted in Christ. Yes, the circumstances around our life may not change, but we have joy because Christ has forgiven our sins. We walk now blameless before him, innocent, holy in his sight. Our eternal destiny is secure. We know to where we are going. Death is not something we need be afraid of. We have joy in the midst of this life and forever after. But the problem is, the problem is that you and I, we tend to put our hope and our joy in these things, in this world, these temporary things that we hope Jesus could fix for us. If you're like me, you, you sometimes pray, you say, God, if you would just change this thing, this circumstance, then I would have joy again. And it's not wrong to pray for those things. We should. But if all of our, our joy and hope is tied up in those things, then we will have a joy that is very fleeting, very temporary. Why? Because you, you might get those things, but then what happens? There's another empire. There, there's another situation. There's another circumstance that's going to come. And where are you? Right back where you started. Because if we, put, we put our hope and joy for, in that thing. But these things, they're not the real problem. The real problem in our life is, is not the relational tension that we're feeling or the problems that we have at work or our school or our studies. The real problem is that we are rebels against God. And that problem, friends, has been solved. That, that is the greatest news that we can ever know. That we can have a joy that God, who is holy, righteous, and does not change, now looks at you, not with eyes of anger, but with eyes of love. You can be brought back into the garden. The very problem at the beginning, we can now be brought back into relationship with God. If that is not a reason for joy, I don't know what it is. So there's a great reason for joy that we have a savior, a savior who saves us not from our situation, not from our circumstance. He saves us from our sin and praise God for that. Lastly, just as we close, just look quickly with me at the response of the shepherds. I won't read it all for us here, but we see that the shepherds, uh, they hear this good news of great joy. And what do they go and do? Their, their first reaction is, let's go see Jesus. It says they go with haste to see Christ. They run to him. At Christmas time, let us not run to other things, temporary fleeting joys, run to Christ. Look at him, look on him and remember all that he has done for us. The shepherds go and afterwards they go and tell others. They tell others, hey, we've heard this good news. A king is coming. 
They go and share it with others and others are wonder, uh, they wonder awe that overshadows them. We too go, we share. There's good news. There's joyful news. I've seen it in my life, in the lives of others. This is really good news. And lastly, verse 20 really sums up the response of the shepherds. It says the shepherds returned. They went back to what they were doing, ordinary life, yet different. They returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. That is what our lives are really about. We've received this good news of great joy and now we go and we glorify and praise God with all that we do. We return to our jobs and our work and our families and we go and we praise the name of Christ because we, we felt this joy. We've known it, that this Christmas is a good thing. In a few minutes, uh, we're going to baptize Michael Smith. It's going to be a great, joyous occasion, a reason for great joy. Why? Because all these things that we're talking about, we, we've seen them now happen in Michael's life. We, we're going to hear a testimony of him and his story of how God has worked and saved him from sin and brought him out of this darkness to a new life now for praising and glorifying God. And we get to witness his uh, profession of faith. We witness him going under the water and coming up signifying that, that uniting himself with Christ, being identified with Christ. We need to see that and rejoice as a congregation uh, in that together. Uh, so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. We're going to watch his testimony, his video. And then after that, we're going to get to sing some songs uh, together. So we'll, the band will come back up. They'll sing. We'll respond together. If there's anything you'd like prayer for, uh, there'll be people out on the sides as well. We'd love to pray with you. So uh, let's pray and then let's uh, rejoice in this testimony and baptism together. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you coming as a child is indeed a reason for great joy. I pray for all of us, uh, Lord, in times when perhaps our hearts are heavy with other things or simply uh, just longing for other things, I pray that you would satisfy us, uh, that your joy would make us full and that we would find uh, a new a joy in you uh, this Christmas season. Uh, we thank you for Michael. We thank you for your work in his life. And we just pray, uh, Lord, uh, that his life would continue to grow in godliness and character, and that this baptism would just remind us all of the work you've done in him and in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, my name is Michael. I grew up as a Catholic, attending church regularly until my late teens. As early as I can remember, I believed in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I feared God, sin, and punishment, but I didn't know the love of God, and I didn't have any concept of a lasting relationship with God. I drifted away from my faith and lived my life without much thought for God throughout my 20s. In my early 30s, I was having some difficulties when a friend at work asked me if he could pray for me. He invited me to come to the North Shore Alliance with him. I went and immediately saw in others the fruit of God's relationship. Eventually, I heard God calling me to faith and started to know the love of Jesus. I was regularly spending time with God for a few years, but my walk with God started to slip. Sin grew in my life, and I began relying on my own strength. 
I thought that everything was going great, but my conscience was being seared. I was filled with the sins of pride, anger, control, and entitlement. I justified sins, ignored others, all the while hurting those closest to me. In May of this year, God got my attention in a big way and brought me to my knees. He showed me clearly that I was a sinner and that all of the good in my life came from Him. I heard overwhelmingly that Jesus loved me so much that He took the punishment that I deserved, dying for my sins and rising to defeat death. I reaffirmed my faith in Jesus and as I started responding to God's love in a genuine way, I felt sickened by my sins and began repenting to God and to those I had hurt. I saw more clearly the depths of my sin and the heights of God's overwhelming mercy. Today, I want to publicly declare my faith in Jesus and pursue accountability and discipleship within the church community. A verse that God has used to correct my priorities is 1 Timothy 4, 7-8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come.